Well, you know. Well, it's beautiful to be here with the Ethical Society. It's beautiful to be with a congregation on the move for justice. We live in Black Lives Matter times. We live in times where people are taking to the streets. People who have been told that your voice, your lives do not matter. Your voices, your leadership is insignificant. Working class black communities in Ferguson and Baltimore, all around the country, saying we will not bow to supremacy systems. We will not have our lives taken without resistance. The racism is not new. It's the resistance and people taking to the streets and people saying no more that makes the headlines all over the country filled with news of the latest racist violence or news full of right-wing reaction to Black Lives Matter. You seeing it? You feeling it? I know y'all are a congregation that's involved. So Black Lives Matter times means that structural inequality, things that are always right there below the surface, are being brought to the fore for the whole country to have to engage with, to have to see. And that choices have to start being made about what side of history do we stand on. Many of us look back at different points in history when movements have been on the move and say, yes, I would have been on the right side. I would have been an abolitionist. I would have been a sit-in activist. And many of you were involved in the 60s and 70s. But it's often easier to look back and assume that we would have been on the right side of history than to be on the right side of history when it's in the now and it's complicated. Because oftentimes, historically, looking back, it seems like everything was so clear. Well, of course everyone wanted to march with Dr. King. I mean, the way it is now, you would almost assume that it's the right wing that was the most fervently supportive of Dr. King because they're the ones that constantly call forward Dr. King's message to attack the Black Lives Matter movement. A watered-down, cut-off-from-its-roots, cut-off-from-its-actual-meaning Dr. King said, don't talk about race, is what the right wing says now. Am I right? We're supposed to be colorblind. Let it go. So now Dr. King gets used to attack Black Lives Matter movement. So we live in times where being on the right side of history requires courage and communities of courage. And so that's why it's beautiful to be with a community engaged in courageous action for Black Lives Matter. And it's also an ongoing commitment and an ongoing struggle. And I think about my own experience as a young person being raised in this society, the most vocal white voices about race. For me as a young person, the most vocal white voices about race were the racists. The white people who could speak passionately, articulately, consistently, had no fear, were the racists in my family and in my community. 
The white people who wanted to be on the right side of history were often terrified to talk about race, afraid to say the wrong thing. Awkward, confused, good-hearted white people. You with me? (laughs) And it's understandable because white supremacy is an unconscious agenda moving forward. And so if you're a white person that just says, hey, I'm just trying to do my thing, race isn't my issue, you are on the conveyor belt of fully supporting the white supremacist agenda. You with me? So you're either actively saying, I choose to engage in anti-racist work in my personal life and in my community, or society is organized to perfectly fit you in to reproducing white supremacy every day. You with me? I mean, how many of you woke up today and said, you know what? I really want to reproduce white supremacist capitalist (laughs) patriarchy today. I really want to make those systems fully functional today. How many of you woke up saying, it's another day to further oppression? We don't. We wake up and we want to be justice-loving people. But this society, it's not about good-hearted people. It's also about institutions and culture and policies and laws. The way the economy is built. Anti-black racism is not an attitude. It is the foundation of the economy of this country. It's the foundation of the political system of this country. And so anti-black racism is at the heart of this movement, challenging it because it is so deeply embedded in the foundation of what this country is. Are you with me? And so that requires courage. Because for those of us and as folks of color, internalized racism, being internalizing the logic of the system too have to fight against it. All of us have to fight against the logic of racism and white supremacy that impacts our lives and our communities. And so when you step off that conveyor belt that's moving you towards furthering white supremacy, you get off that conveyor belt and it's a little shaky. You're like, what, do I st- what am I standing on? So it can be awkward and confusing. And the next thing you know, everything you do seems to be making a mistake. Am I right? So it requires courage. So I remember for myself as a young person, I really came of consciousness in the early 90s with the Rodney King verdict. Those of you who were around or who were older, remember the Rodney King verdict. 1992, African-American motorists speeding, pulled over late at night brutally beaten by four white police officers while a much larger ring of officers stood around keeping a perimeter. It was videotaped. It went viral. As a young person, I was like, well, of course, justice will be served. Even as an activist, I was already an activist. I was a social justice activist. But still, I was like, they got caught on tape. 30 minutes from my house, I was 18, 30 minutes from my house in this direction, white middle class, semi-valley, acquittal, no charges against the officers. You can feel the echoes with each grand jury today. You could feel the echoes of it. I could feel it all around me as Trayvon Martin got put on trial for his own murder and George Zimmerman acquitted. 
over and over and over again. So 30 minutes in the other direction, the multiracial working class city of Los Angeles erupted. And before that, the narrative around race that I grew up in, in a liberal white family surrounded by a lot of white folks who all said, hey, the civil rights movement happened, Dr. King gave a speech, and we're post-racial. We're colorblind. You hear that all the time, right? We're colorblind. So as a young white person, being told to be colorblind essentially meant just assume everybody else is white too. (laughs) Right? So Rodney King... Los Angeles is erupting. The flames are burning down my whole worldview. But I had no idea, one, that I even had a worldview to begin with, but I knew I could smell it burning. But I had no idea what to do next. The one black person in our crew of white social justice, mostly white social justice activists, about like 15 of us, had all gathered the night of the verdict. And we were angry I mean, we were united against racism. We were united against the Klan, which is a good place to start. (laughs) That's some good unity to to build with. But we also had the belief that racism was kind of just like something that happened with individual extremists. Well, the one black person in our crew, Terrence, he came over, and he didn't often explicitly talk about race. And we just kind of, I mean, I would just assume, well, it's because we're colorblind and we're post-racial. We can talk about class. We can talk about economic justice. He started talking about his experiences of racism. He said, to be with you all tonight, we're friends. But in order for me to be here with you on this night, as Los Angeles is in flames, as people all over the country... Mostly folks of color, but also a lot of white anti-racists, too, with black leadership all over the country, started rising up against this verdict. So I need to talk with you about my experiences of racism. And it was a, it was a powerful moment because oftentimes, and, and many of you are painfully aware of this, when a black person starts talking to white people, rarely do white people let that black person finish a sentence. <laughs> Unless that black person's telling those white people how great they are. But if a black person starts talking about their experiences of racism, the but, 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 but river of denial flows. You with me? But something powerful was happening because Los Angeles was in flames and we were social justice activists. And even though we had been raised to be white, many of us in that room, which means to be functionally illiterate about race. Being raised white means to be functionally illiterate about race, but simultaneously think you're so superior that you know it better than black people do themselves and any other person of color. And in fact, a white person, regardless of whether or not they've studied any of this, could probably go to the black community, the Asian community, the Latino community, and teach them about racism. You with me? White privilege operates to be like, I am simultaneously a white person who knows it all, while racism teaches white people to know very little about the realities of the vast majority of people in the world, about the true history of this country. 
And so something powerful happened because a whole group of white people listened and Terrence started talking about his experiences of being the class valedictorian on his way to his high school to give his speech, mostly white, mostly middle class. He was one of the few black students on his way in front of his high school going over his speech and he's so excited and then the police stop him and the white officers start searching him and he doesn't have his student ID on him and they don't believe that he goes to the school and they laugh at him when he says he's the valedictorian and they say you're here to break into the cars of the parents who are here to see their kids graduate and the white students and their families are walking by and awkwardly see him but keep going and Terrence says that even though none of the white parents said it they could feel he could feel this look on some of their faces as if it was like kind of like a good job, officers, you got him. That kid probably, that, you know, that kid's probably trying to sell drugs to my kid. Eventually, someone finally stopped and said, he goes to this school. He is the valedictorian. He gave his speech but in a much different place than he originally had thought he would be giving his speech because he said that that reminded him that, yes, you're the valedictorian, but don't forget your place. Don't forget who you are. This is not your school. This is, not, this is something that was given to you but could be taken at any moment. And it was painful. It was devastating. And for those of you who are raised white, hearing about race for the first time if you let your heart listen to it, it can be devastating. And for those of you who are folks of color who talk about race and to have a white person finally just listen, these are moments where transformational consciousness can happen, where values, ethical values can be developed. But nonetheless, I felt horrible. I felt guilt. I felt shame. I felt terrible. Anyone here ever felt that? Whether you're a man who finds out you're a sexist and you're like, oh my gosh. You're a white person, you realize you've got internalized racism. It's just like, oh, this is horrible. You feel terrible. The history is brutal. So after that, I started going over to my friend Terrence's house, and he had a poster up on his wall of all these black leaders. And I realized I didn't know who any of them were, except Dr. King, who I had essentially been taught about by the right wing, who just said Dr. King had a vision about no one seeing color and no one talking about race again. That was Dr. King's message. So I looked at all these black leaders, and I was like, who are these folks? And he started explaining, this is who Ida B. Wells is in the anti-lynching campaign of the early 1900s. This is Septima Clark, and she was the architect of the citizenship schools in the 60s that taught tens of thousands of young black folks throughout the South, not only about citizenship rights and voting, but becoming active participants in a democratic society to transform relationships of power so we could all be free and equal. He was breaking it down, and I realized I was 18, three years already as a social justice activist, and this was the first time in my life I was hearing a person of color explain history, explain politics, and I had no real way to make sense of what he was saying. It was almost as if somebody was speaking another language. So week after week, I'd be like, Terrence, who are these people again? And eventually he said, look, I'm not telling you about these people because you feel guilty about Rodney King and you just want to know a couple things about black people. You know what I'm saying? 
This isn't now you have a couple things to pull out of your pocket if a conversation about race ever comes up and you can say, yeah, Ida B. Wells, I know about her. Or Black History Month, you won't feel so bad. I'm not telling you who these people are to help you feel better. And I'm also not telling you about who these people are because they are my leaders. I'm telling you about W.E.B. Du Bois and Ella Baker because they are your leaders too. And then he said something that changed my life. He said, one of the ways that white supremacy hurts you as a white person. It's like, what? I didn't say it, but in my mind, I was like, white, isn't racism like a black problem? That's something that like happens in your community, right? I didn't say that. But he said, one of the ways that white supremacy hurts white people is that it makes them functionally illiterate to understand the world around them, and it teaches them that they have nothing to learn from the histories, legacies, culture, literature, poetry, lives, experiences of people of color historically and today. And white supremacy is gutting the foundational democratic people's movements of this country from your consciousness as a social justice standing on the side of love person. White supremacy is turning you into a well-intentioned, good-hearted, wants-to-do-the-right-thing, but is only showing you the steps to take towards furthering oppression. You with me? Oh, my God. It changed my life. And I feel the echoes of those moments, of those conversations, each time one of these grand jury announcements comes out, each time a new rising up for Black Lives Matter happens. But as I started getting this consciousness, I was just like, what do I do? So I got involved with a multiracial coalition in my community college, working class community college, and at first, we were working around fee hikes, kind of like right now, like working around economic justice, but not talking about race. We were working around fee hikes. We had people of color leadership, Mecha, the Black Student Union, and we were powerful. We were mobilizing hundreds of people on this commuter college in Orange County, California. Orange County, California, the hotbed of right-wing politics, the Ronald Reagan coalition base of right-wing politics, Orange County. So we had a multiracial coalition working around student fee hikes, and we had mass support, hundreds of people coming out to our rallies. But the next semester, one of my mentors, one of, my, one of the leaders of the coalition, David Rojas, he said, next semester, we're going to fight not only for free education, but for education that represents who we are as people. We want expanded ethnic studies, more black studies, more Chicano Chicana studies, more women's history, and we also want more faculty of color and women of color faculty in particular hired. I was like, yeah, let's do it. I had no idea what was about to happen. Our mighty coalition studied Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States together to prepare. The next semester begins. We start having rallies, demonstrations, putting out leaflets about ethnic studies, women's studies. 
Hiring more faculty at Democratic Education for All. The white support almost completely vanished. Me and a lot of my white friends were taking ethnic studies classes. And we were still involved, but almost all of the white support vanished. And even some of the progressive whites, white professors who had been encouraging us were like, why have you taken on the race issue? That's going to divide everybody. We had a rally for ethnic studies. Shortly after the coalition, we had been heralded in, in the local newspaper as the revival of civic engagement. It was now the coalition divides the campus. Mecha, who had been a leader of this coalition, who had been referred to over and over and over again as the campus heroes for building up this coalition and re-engaging students, was now, now being called an anti-white hate group. Because if you talk about ethnic studies, if you talk about hiring faculty of color, if you start talking about racism, that means you're anti-white. So just like now, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization that hates white people, right? No. <laughs> no. See, that's why I come to the Ethical Society. <laughs> so there's a rally for our coalition, and I start walking towards it. You know, it's another one of our rallies. And at the same time that these rallies were happening for ethnic studies, ads started appearing in newspapers all over California saying, the reason your student fees are going up is because illegal aliens are taking over the, the state. It was the beginning of a massive anti-immigrant attack in, in California in the 90s. So this was also being put forward at the same time that we were talking about ethnic studies. So we also started talking about immigrant rights. And so there was a rally, and I'm walking towards it, and at first I was like, wow, there's a lot of white people. But as I get closer, I realize that what's happening is there's a couple hundred white people who are surrounding a much smaller demonstration of mostly Latino, Latina students with some of the black student union members as well. But it's all people of color, black and brown. And they're surrounded by about 200 white students who are yelling, go home, go home, go home, go back to your country, go back to your country. And I will bet that every single one of those white students, if they were asked, would say that they were not racist. Because we live in a time of colorblind white supremacy where there are no racists anymore. I mean, the Klan will kind of talk about how they're trying to support white people's continued existence. And then they'll eventually say, yeah, yeah, we are racist. I mean, come on, we're the Klan. <laughs> but over and over and over again, right, we see no one's a racist. Even when they perpetuate racist things. It was just a misunderstanding. You don't, you don't understand my joke. You don't understand my humor. No, my friends were just doing this. So I'm standing. There's this huge crowd of, of white folks yelling at my friends and the people who are part of this coalition, all people of color. And I'm standing on the outside, and I can see them in there. And so how many of you have been in situations, many situations, likely, where you're standing in a position where you know the right thing is over there and something terrifying is between you. You with me? The Black Lives Matter movement is over there. 
But a Fox News right-wing media machine has created a mob of folks yelling and screaming at the Black Lives Matter movement. So you see, I need to get there, but I need to go through something terrifying to get there. So think about what brings courage to you in moments like that. And so for me, I was standing there and I started making my way through all these white folks. And I started thinking about ancestors. Started thinking about the ancestors on Terrence's poster. Started thinking about ancestors, social justice movement ancestors who I deeply respect. And so I joined the protests and I pick up a sign for ethnic studies. And white students just kind of lose it. And they start yelling, race traitor, race traitor. Race trader, race trader. And so I was, in fact, reading a journal called Race Trader at the time. <laughs> All about how white supremacy is a so, how white supremacy is about dividing people from being able to come together to create a genuinely humane society that benefits all people. About how the development of who white people are, raised white, taught to be white. Is about turning European working class and poor people into white people who were aligned across class to a ruling class agenda that does not benefit them but perpetuates this idea that it's a white society. And so even if you're working class white that doesn't have good health care, that has crappy housing, who your kids are going to a school that's falling apart, you can blame every person of color around you for those problems and simultaneously feel like, well, at least I'm better than them. You with me? So W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the people Terrence taught me about, he said that white people exchange economic justice, exchange an ethical society based on the values that are truly at the heart of who we are in this room. White people exchange those commitments for the psychological and public wages of whiteness. And it's happened generationally so much that white folks don't know that that's a choice or that that's happening. It's just the way things are. And so Black Lives Matter movement is a time of exploding consciousness and realizing that there are choices that have to be made. Race traitor, race traitor. And then this one guy gets right in front of my face and he says, what color is your skin? What color is your skin? And I realized I was being called back. White folks were like, you have stepped out of line. I'm calling you back. You're supposed to be on this side of the line. And so that's the thing. All these people, racism doesn't exist anymore. But then you all know, as soon as you start talking about racism, the racist, vile poison just comes shooting from all directions. Am I right? So it's like, everything's fine. Don't talk about race. We don't even have a race problem here. We don't, there is no race problem. Maybe somewhere else in the country, but not here. And then Black Lives Matter starts taking to the streets and then the poison and the evil starts coming out. Am I right? So how many of you here have studied the great struggle of Harry Potter? (laughs) Harry Potter. There's the Voldemort principle of supremacy systems. Voldemort, right-wing fascist, leading... An army to, impure, to impose pure blood supremacy, white supremacy, blood supremacy within the wizarding world. To create biological differences that would only have meaning 
in a diverse society of being beautiful representations of our full humanity, but creating a supremacy system that organizes people around certain aspects of biology into a supremacy system. Am you with me? And Voldemort, you know, of course, wants to crush critical consciousness at Hogwarts and get rid of our gay professor Dumbledore and all these things. <laughs> but we also know, and I'm not going to try to give too much away for those of you who have not finished the series. <laughs> Voldemort is not only out there, but Voldemort gets in here. And so white supremacy is out there. Patriarchy is out there, and it's also in here. For those of us who are white, raised white into white privilege, into white ignorance of racism, of white silence, the centuries-old code of white people, white silence in the face of racial injustice. Not only silence, but the ability to not see what's right in front of you. You with me? So Voldemort's in here too. But thankfully, just like in Harry Potter, we have people like Hermione Granger, Ron Weasley, folks who fought back against Voldemort. And Hermione Granger, those of you who have not studied uh, Harry Potter here, Hermione Granger is like the Ella Baker of the wizarding world. (laughs) She organizes. And there's important lessons about Hermione because, you know, She makes some mistakes with the whole house elves, you know, situation, but she learns from it. And those of us who are white, those of us who are male, we start coming into consciousness about feminism and about racism. And next thing you know, it's like we're off the conveyor belt and we're not sure what to do. And we start to get really awkward and scared about where to step and making mistakes. Am I right? A lot of white folks, good white folks, the number one concern is to say the wrong thing. Folks of color are like, my number one concern is the annihilation of my community. (laughs) But I understand, because as a white person, you come into consciousness and you don't want to say the wrong thing. But again, it's not about individual behavior. It's about institutions and structures. So Hermione learns from her mistake, and she helps form Dumbledore's army. And we need a Dumbledore's army that brings all kinds of different people together to fight for collective liberation. You with me? So, just to bear with me here with Harry Potter, there's the Horcrux strategy of collective liberation. Horcruxes are how supremacy systems are in the institutions, healthcare, education, housing, in the policy, not the decisions of a racist neighbor to try to keep a person. I'm talking about policy decisions of creating all white, low-interest loan suburbs, redlining communities of color, policies that impact millions of people's lives. So the Horcrux strategy of collective liberation is for all of those of us who are impacted by supremacy systems, which is all of us, we have to simultaneously work against the structural inequality in society while simultaneously getting the death culture of supremacy systems out of our minds. But I'll also say that sometimes when you start to become conscious about supremacy systems... The impulse can be, oh my God, you know, like so for myself, it's like, you know, finding out about racism and finding out about sexism. I was like, oh my God, I'm a sexist too. Maybe the best thing I can do is stay in bed. 
I, I won't say something messed up to somebody. I'll stay in bed. But the getting the poison, the death culture of white supremacy, of patriarchy out of our heads means engaging in struggle in our communities through our ethical society, through our organizations, through our relationships in the community with other organizations, forming alliances, working to transform the racism in the criminal justice system, in the education system, working to build up working class organizations in our communities, in our unions, while also recognizing that we're working to get Voldemort out of our heads. You with me? So we have to create a culture of courage because one of the key moments, one of the key moments in being able to fight off the supremacy systems of Voldemort in the world and in our heads is being able to name the reality of those supremacy systems. And so a culture of courage, and you all have the Washington Ethical Society. You all have created a culture of courage. You have a Black Lives Matter banner out there. You all are building the capacity to be courageous in the face of injustice. Am I right? And so part of what we have to do is look for openings and opportunities to bring more and more people with us, to invite people in. As a young person, as as a young white person, I was invited into white supremacy over and over and over again. Invited to see undocumented people as enemies. Invited in to see black women on welfare as the cause of every problem in this country. You with me? But I was rarely invited in to a white anti-racist tradition of struggle for a multiracial democracy. Because very few people in my life even knew that such tradition existed. So part of our work is to create freedom schools for all of our kids. For all of our people to learn the history not only of the black liberation struggle, which is vital, but young white kids need to know about people like Ann Braden. White anti-racists throughout history in this country who have said, I choose to be on the right side of history, even if that means I'm alienated, alienated from my family and my community. We need freedom schools for all of our kids because right now, so often, white babies are abandoned to white supremacy. You get what I'm saying here? Without conscious role models, without teaching young white kids. For kids of color, we've developed a level of consciousness in, 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 in a society like this that we need to teach kids of color to love who they are. I was giving a talk to a multiracial group of students about anti-racism, and a couple young kids of color came up and they said, it was so, thank you so much for being a passionate white person about racism because I've never heard someone speak like that before. Many of you can speak like that too. So we need lots of voices of white folks who are speaking courageously and passionately against racism for the folks of color, for, for young kids of color to know that there's white folks. But then two 18-year-old white boys came up to me, young men. And they said, before you talked about Ann Braden, before you talked about William Lloyd Garrison, Before you talked about these white anti-racists, I knew who I didn't want to be, but I had no idea who I wanted to be, who I could be, 
And so the death culture of white supremacy is happily, actively, daily working to raise white kids to grow up to fear and hate children of color. White supremacy is devouring the lives of children of color and also deforming the humanity of white kids. You with me? And so we need a courageous culture for racial justice, a courageous culture for Black Lives Matter that says white supremacy cannot have any of our babies. White supremacy cannot have any of our children. White supremacy cannot have our communities. So many of us, those of us who have been raised white, you see more and more white folks with Black Lives Matter holding up signs that say white silence equals consent. Have you seen those? And that is powerful. My closing message here is that the next step is to have white folks who can not only say white silence equals consent, but begin to take space in white communities to bring a white anti-racist vision and possibility of hope to white communities in a way that takes space, but then also makes space for the leadership of folks of color in the Black Lives Matter movement in particular right now to be amplified and heard within white society. And so all of us come together as a multiracial beloved community, and then all of us have different work to do within our networks, within our families, within our communities, because anti-black racism has impacted all of us in this room in different ways. But all of us have work to do against anti-black racism. And for white folks, it's a time for courageous white anti-racist leadership particularly in white society, to not only break the silence, but to create a beautiful symphony of liberation voices of white people who talk about multiracial democracy connected to ending black, anti-black racism. A beautiful chorus, a multiracial chorus that includes white folks talking about anti-racism in a way that understands we need to free the minds of all white folks from the poison of Voldemort, the poison of white supremacy. You with me? So let us be courageous. And I invite you now, because oftentimes it's not just Voldemort, we have the dementors, the haters that come and say, you can't do anything, you can't accomplish anything, you're powerless. You ever feel that? You know, it's like, oh my God, we've got like a 10-person social justice committee that can hardly pull off a successful uh, meeting right now. How are we going to change the world? <laughs> you with me? So sometimes these dementors get in our business. So I invite you now, as we close, we're going to cast a spell together. <laughs> so I invite you to bring out your magical wand of liberation. I invite you to think about ancestors. Think about whatever brings you courage. Whatever brings you courage to work for Black Lives Matter while Fox News is putting forward that even though the number of police officers killed is at a 20-year low and the number of civilians being killed by police is at a 40-year high, Fox News is saying if you support Black Lives Matter, you support the killing, a war on cops. That kind of hate, that kind of dementor twisting of reality. You with me? So imagine those voices and now connect to our courage, our ancestors, the people who inspire us, our ethical values that unite us and bring forward your wand because we have a spell to cast, which is expecto patronum. 
Expecto Patronum is connecting to the power that we have to work for liberation. Connecting to a place of power and joy and happiness in our lives of knowing that we can create beloved community. We can create multiracial alliances. We can cross the barriers that divide us to form loving, beautiful relationships. Do you know that? Do you feel that? We can do that? Well, it's time to channel that energy and we're going to cast a spell by saying expecto patronum together on the count of three. So channel your happy place for liberation. Imagine those dementors that are telling us that we can't do this. Supremacy systems are too strong. Racism will divide us again. Those dementors. And we say no. We can accomplish incredible things. We can work for collective liberation. And on the count of three, expecto patronum and let the liberation shine and blow away these dementors. Are you with me? One, two, three. Expecto patronum! Thank you all.